you very much. Go ahead and set the clock. Um, all right, here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a provocative question. It's meant to be provocative. So to some of you, it's going to be kind of like, how can I even say that in church? And for others of you, it's like, well, of course, I think that way all the time. But anyway, with that said, here, this is the question I want you to think about. Um, okay. Well, just take me. Okay, there you go. So what good does it do to follow Jesus? Do you remember in the, in the worship stuff, this was actually one of the things that Kevin said. So I just want you to see that there's a theme here, but I want you to, I want you to do this, and, and w there's a lot of different ways to answer that question, and a lot of different ideas, and there's one particular one that we're going to focus on, but let me mention one briefly because it's going to come back around, and that is the world says this all the time in a very pejorative manner, right, in a dismissive manner. What good does it do to follow Jesus? They're, they're like, it, they're not, they're, at this point in time, the world is not only thinking that it doesn't do good to follow Jesus, they actually think it does harm, okay? So that's a problem, right? I mean, there's, there's that kind of a mentality out there and so on. But that's not the one that we're looking at. The one that we're looking at is quite different than that, and it's the one that actually Christians feel. And I just want you to do something here. I want you to see that as much as we even know we're not supposed to and everything else, I want you to see that there is this thing that can come into our lives. And, and just to show you, this is Solomon, okay? And Solomon says, now remember, Solomon is the guy that had everything, right? See, we're going to look at how we can get weary from God not answering a prayer. Solomon is a guy who God not only answered his prayer, but he gave him everything else besides. So he had everything, the most money, the most wisdom, the most pleasure, the most of everything that anybody in here could ever want. If I could just have X, I would be happy. And Solomon is the guy that God has in all of world history who experienced the most of everything that anybody could ever want in any dimension. And here's, how, here's where he gets to. In my futile life. <laughs> I mean, you know, you just hear the weary, right? In my futile life, I have seen everything. But look at where he goes. This is the thing that sort of really puts him in a tough place. There is a righteous man who perishes in spite of his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who lives long in spite of his evil. This shouldn't be this way. That's not how it's supposed to work. We all get that God is not transactional. What that means is we all get that if I do X, Y, and Z, it doesn't obligate God to do A, B, and C. Or the other way around. That if I do A, B, and C, it doesn't obligate God to do X, Y, and Z. We all get that that's not true. But if you are in this category, and I would say every Christian is in this category, there are times when you might be going through a very long season of an incredibly difficult marriage that just is not getting better, and you're just it just wears on the soul. How about... Being in financial bondage. Anybody ever been in financial bondage for a number of years? You wake up thinking about it every single day, and it just sucks your strength. This is, you know, I want to say something. This will be kind of funny. Um, it's kind of a weird day, right? Just the whole vibe, and you can see by people staying home and everything else. It's just kind of a weird day. You know what I mean? There's just like lacking in energy. Somebody said to me, they said, it was just all we could do just to get here today. You know, it's kind of that vibe in the world right now, right? I mean, in Seattle. 
And, and I just want to say, I'm taking you even deeper down that hole. <laughs> okay? So, sorry about that, but trust me, it's going to go good. So, in financial bondage, where you wake up and it just sucks, in a long-term ongoing health issue, anybody who's been through one of these just knows. There's just, you know, you know that God can heal you. You never forget that God can heal you, and that makes it tougher. Why isn't he? What's going on here, right? How about struggling and losing all too often with depression or some other mental issue? Anybody who's been through that knows. This is just, it wears, it wears, it wears, it wears away to weariness. In a situation in work that's killing you, a boss situation or the job that you're doing or whatever it is, and you don't have a choice. You know what I mean? You do in one sense, but in a real sense, like a mortgage and providing for your family and so on, you don't, right? Not really. So you just are going through this, and then there's another thousand that we could have put up there. And the thing that I want you to just think about is, is when you go through these things, it's very easy, and it's almost likely that at some point you will get to that place, what good does it do to follow Jesus? Whenever we say that thing in our heads, like when we're kind of going, you know, you've never healed me, and you haven't fixed my marriage, and you haven't fixed my finances, and you haven't done this, you haven't done this, and there's this, there's this way of just kind of going, Ugh. Now, we all know that it's wrong to say this, right? What good are you? <laughs> I think everybody should get that one, right? What good are you is not like the right question for God. <laughs> but I want you to just think about something. See, watch, you could take a ledger, we all know this. You could take a ledger and you could put on one side of it, let's just start from scratch. What are all the things in my life that are good? What is it that I have? And you could start writing down in your ledger all the things that were good, and you would come up with a quite a long list. And then you could say, and what are these things that have got me sort of wrapped around the axle? And it would be a fairly short list. Doesn't make any difference to us, so really, does it? I mean, if you do that, if you're in this moment and you do that exercise, you're going to find that you feel differently about what's going on. But in the end, having to go through it every day, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. It's the, where your attention goes. It's where your thoughts go because this thing just isn't right. And so you get focused on it and you start literally going down into a black hole, right? It's sort of sucking your energy, sucking your life. It's taking, there's no light escaping. You're going into a very difficult place, right? Now, again, I want to say something. There's some people in here that know this super well because you've done it multiple times because you're prone to it. That's your personality. And there's other people here that are really good at resisting this and so on. But I just need us to do something in compassion. I need us to recognize that all of us in some level at some point in time do something akin to this. There's something that can happen in your life that just gets you to a place to where you feel like this. And I want you to feel that, and I want you to allow that to happen. I don't want you to just resist it because you're supposed to and you are supposed to. And we're going to talk about that. But I want you to feel it because I want you to understand what we're doing today. And that is, how would you like to get to a place where the dominant and ever-increasing feeling in your life is joy? Would you? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands in here because it would just be embarrassing. How many people can actually say that that's true right now? See? It's just not what's marking. 
Now, if you live in the Northwest, particularly not at the end of January. <laughs> After how many days are we up to now? You know, of rain, right? This is where we're going. Scott Chin, this is, I love what God does here. I know everybody makes fun of me for doing this, but you just can't imagine how perfect it is that you're praying for this. And not because you're going through something tough, but the opposite. Because you get this, and you've lived a life that frankly, has, it lives in a much of the victory that we're going for today. So you're the perfect person to be praying for this. So pray for this, lift up another church. We just got, thanks. Let's pray. Father, we come before you um, so hungry. Amen. Hungry to catch what you're sharing through Kurt this morning. Thank you, God. Lord, we, um, we can look outside and see how, uh, how the rain pours, but Lord, your deep desire with our deep hunger to know what it is to live a life of joy that you promise. Fueled by your crazy love for us. Thank you, Jesus. So hard to get our hearts and our minds around it, Lord. So I ask that you would um, like a farming, that you would clear out the rocks, you would clear out the weeds, you would clear a space in our minds and our hearts so that what you have to share would take deep root this morning. Thank you, Jesus. And bear a harvest Amen. that only you can imagine. Amen. And that we will look back at this time in our life in your revelation to say, Lord, what is it to experience you in fullness? Amen. We are so hungry. Lord, speak through Kurt um, in a way that we can receive it. Uh, we also lift up, uh, I lift up two pastors, uh, Pastor Tim this morning, uh, the, the church uh, where Spencer goes in uh, San Jose. Lord, just uh, speak in a mighty way. What you're doing in that church Thank you, um, is... Um, is awesome. And Lord, I, I pray for my brother, Sean Lumsden, um, that you would, um, you would just show up, um, be over the congregation who looks after, be with him and his family, Lord. Um, thank you, Jesus. Lord, we love you. Uh, we thank you that even though we might be tired, we come with a deep hunger to hear from you this morning. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. That was perfect. Sean Lumsden's uh, wife passed away suddenly a few weeks ago, and many of you know Sean, and many of us actually went. So thank you for that, Scott, very much. We're in Luke. We're in the last time that Jesus is going to speak to everybody. There's going to be a Last Supper section, and there's going to be a couple of things that happen. But this is his last basic public sort of proclamations. And we would want to note that the last thing that he says to everybody is what's going to happen in the end. And we've been looking at these 
things about the destruction of Jerusalem, the surrounding of the city and the destruction and all of the bad things that are going to happen. We've been looking at that and saying, and we've been finding hope in it or comfort in it for Christians who will be going through this and understanding that God prophesied it and therefore things aren't falling apart, even though they're falling apart, but God's got it, right? And so we've been getting this comfort out of it. But I do want you to also remember that he is speaking to everybody. And what he's also saying is, is warning them. This is coming. Whether you think it is or not, whether you agree with it, whether you like it, it doesn't matter. It's coming. So it's a warning. So we're in this warning section, and there's one more little piece of it that we're going to do next week. But this week, the section that we're in is kind of a, a wrap-up, and then there's a further wrap-up. But then there will be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, and there will be anguish on the earth among the nations bewildered by the roaring sea and the waves. And that's a metaphor, right? By the fact that the world's in great turmoil. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world because the celestial powers will be shaken, even the heavens, in other words. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now listen, but when these things... What things? The Son of Man coming? No, it's the whole thing he's been saying to us over the last few weeks. All of this destruction of Jerusalem and all this. When you see these horrible things taking place, when you see signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and everybody quaking and fearing, what's he saying to Christians to do? He's saying when you see these things take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is near. He's saying there's a joy in this. There's something that's going on in this. When this is starting to happen, instead of going, oh, woe is me and hiding, he's saying, stand up, lift your head, and know that, this is, that there's something else going to happen too. That there is a bigger picture to it all. Okay? All right. So we get that. Now, having said that, I'm just going to take a minute here. It's going to take about seven, eight minutes. And what I want to do is I want us to, to talk about the first level of basically what good does it do to follow Jesus. There's a first level to it. Now, in this prophecy, and this is a prophecy, he's telling us what's going to happen, and then does it happen? And sure enough, it does. And the idea is, though, as we've learned over the years as we've done prophecy, remember I stacked chairs up and so on during Revelation, and what we learned was is that prophecy oftentimes has what we call a near-term fulfillment, which is to say something that happens that makes people know that this prophecy was true and real and you better pay attention and you really need to pay attention because not everything in the prophecy was exhausted, which means it's going to come and fulfill ultimately. So what we do is we look at these, and not all prophecies like this, some of them are just one time and that's it. But this is one where there's a near-term fulfillment that is meant to be so solid, to be so shocking and striking that it makes you trust that the ultimate fulfillment is sure to come because this thing was so serious it's not like giving you a little horoscope and it kind of like vaguely fit it's telling you something that couldn't otherwise be told it would be stupid here's what jesus has said last week and we, we looked at it it would be just like this jesus coming to you a citizen of how long has seattle been here how long has the city of seattle been here 1880, so what is that? Do the math for me. A couple hundred, not even, right? Not even close, 100 and some years, right? Okay, so we can't go there because we've got to at least find something that's 1,000 years old. Well, so nothing in America fits that's a city, right? So then we have to go to Europe, and then we go to, I don't know how Paris, how Paris is, but let's just take for one Rome. 
with the Colosseum and the Vatican and everything else. Now, somebody walks into, into Rome right now, and what they say is this. They say, in this generation, in less than 40 years, there's not going to be a Rome anymore. All of it. The Colosseum, the Vatican, all of it. Knocked down, not one stone left on another. The whole thing desolate. What do you think? It's been here for th a couple thousand years more. This is ridiculous for you to say this. But if it then happened, <laughs> and the person said, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this happened, it would make you be like really careful about understanding that that other one's probably going to happen, <laughs> right? So we have to look and see, was there a near-term fulfillment of it? And we've already seen it. We've seen that Jerusalem fell after a thousand years of being a city with one blip there for the Babylonian thing, but that's it, Okay. But I want you to see something about, there's another thing that's being said here. The Son of Man is going to come in great power, surrounding cities and all this. I want you to see something that happened. Now, Jesus is saying this 33 A.D. timeline, 33 A.D., okay? In 70 A.D., 37 years, just shy of a generation, in, in 70 A.D., Jerusalem is going to fall, and a few years later, there's no more Israel. The whole nation's gone. In preparation... Before the fall of Jerusalem, in 66 AD, what's happening in, in all of Israel is this. People having rejected the real Messiah become desperate to find their own Messiah. Do you remember at the beginning of these verses that we've looked at to where Jesus told them, there's going to be a whole lot of Messiahs rise up, don't believe them, don't go after them? Well, a whole lot of Messiahs started raising up after Jesus had died, after the, he'd been crucified. And people started believing him because there is no more Messiah going to come than the one that came. And so people are desperately trying to find another answer other than Jesus. This is what's happening. See it? And so all these insurrections are happening. So the Romans show up in 66 AD, four years before they formally sieged Jerusalem. And during that time, they're starting to try to put out the fires. Now I want you to see what a historian says. This is not a Christian. This is, in fact, a Roman who happens to be Jewish and is the historian for the general that's putting down all the fires that are breaking out in these messianic movements in Israel. This is Josephus. This is his name. On the 21st day of the month of Artemisius, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it. And were not the events that followed it. Now watch what he says. It seemed like a fable except that there's so many eyewitnesses to it. And secondly, it did portend huge things like the fall of Jerusalem. Understand, when the Roman general came against Jerusalem, he was not intending to cause it to fall utterly. The Roman general was just trying to quell the, the insurrections. And he meant to keep Jerusalem up. It was the Jewish people inside the city that essentially burned it down. And destroyed it. And, the, and the, Roman, the Roman general was sitting out there going, this is crazy. What are these people doing? And so he says, were it not related by those who saw it and weren't the events that followed of it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. In other words, something this huge, God would, God would say beforehand that it's going to happen. For before sunset, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding cities. Let me give you a little better translation on this. That's the one you'll... A supernatural apparition was seen 
too amazing to be believed. What I, am now what I am now to relate would, I imagine, be dismissed as imaginary had this not been vouched for by eyewitnesses. And then followed, you notice his argument, and then followed by subsequent disasters that deserved to be thus signified, signalized. For before sunset chariots were seen in the air over the whole country, an armed battalion speeding through the crowds and encircling the cities. Exactly as Jesus said would happen, and exactly as the Roman general then did. Now, here's a couple other people, just so you know, it's not just Josephus saying this. This is Tacitus, who was a, a historian of the age, a first century pagan historian, not a Christian. He related, he says, in the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict of glittering armor. I, just to show you how many sources this was and how widely accepted this was, years later, and there, I, could, I could literally put up hundreds of these, this was absolutely part of history. This is no more part of, this is no less part of history than Washington crossing the Delaware. In other words, the historians that look back at the age said, if you look at the, the truth of it, is this true? The historians reported this actually happened. And so this medieval Jewish historian expounds upon the angelic army of A.D. 66 by saying, Moreover, in those days were seen chariots of fire and horsemen, a great force flying across the sky near to the ground, coming against Jerusalem and all the land of Judah, all of them horses of fire and riders of fire. And he's collecting this from all of the sources. It's so well reported, so well documented, so well historical fact. So right here now, we have to ask the question, is this enough of a near-term fulfillment to be termed a near-term fulfillment? Is this thing enough? And what Jesus said was, is cities are going to be surrounded. Jerusalem is going to fall. All of which happens. So this happens in 66. Jesus prophesied in 33. This generation is going to see this. Can we say from these accounts that the citizens, that the people of that age saw this? Well, yeah. I mean, I could go in deeper, but let me just leave it here and say, yes, we can say that this actually was the fulfillment of that. But there's more of a fulfillment, isn't there? Jesus coming again. Jesus' return. Now, I'm not going to go into it in great detail, but do understand. Here Jesus says he's coming back. When Jesus ascends in Acts, the angel all of a sudden appears and says, what are you doing looking up there? He's going to come again. Right? And then Paul prophesies it. John has these revelations when he's in prison, basically, and he prophesies it. And there's all these images of Jesus coming again, all this imagery, all this prophetic in the New Testament about Jesus coming again, which is to say this. There was enough of a near-term fulfillment for us to say it's true and to make us believe that the second thing that is being said, that Jesus comes again, is also true. And so we as Christians believe that Jesus is, in fact, coming again. And we have reason to think so, which is based upon what has already happened. That's the argument for near-term and ultimate fulfillment. Having said that, then I want to say this. So what good does it do to follow Jesus? Well, what happens every time that these armies come and Jesus comes in the cloud? What happens? Judgment. <laughs> you're either with him or you're against him. And if you're against him, if you were against, look, what Jesus told the Christians in the time of Jerusalem's fall is he said, get out. <laughs> Don't even come. If you hear about it, run. Too bad if you're pregnant, Run. Right? So what happened to the people that believed Jesus? They didn't go through it. What happened to the people that didn't believe Jesus? They died. 
horribly inside the city. In the prophecies that are given about Jesus coming again, what happens? The people that are with him go to be with him, and the other people are judged. So let me just put it this way. You know, there's that old, was it Pascal's wager, whatever it was, but this idea goes something like this, which is, geez, you know, what do you got to lose in believing it? Because <laughs> if you're wrong, well, then there's just nothingness. But if you're right, well, it means everything. So there is this way of arguing that one of the good things that it does to believe is it saves your soul. And I was going to say saves another part of you. It saves you. And thank God, right? That's important. We always, need to, we always need to remember that these things are in this bigger picture and salvation and this being saved and being with him for eternity is a big deal. But having said that, that's not the place where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. Because what I want you to do is, having seen the near term and the far term, I now want you to understand the progressive fulfillments that are taking place. Because they're happening. Now, how are they happening? Look at the wording that Jesus gives in his Last Supper to his disciples. The wording is key. No, no, I will not abandon his orphans. He's telling him he's going to die and be taken away. They still don't understand it, but it happens. And then he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. My Father will love you, and we will come and make our home with each of you. This is not the resurrection, is it? This is saying that Jesus is coming to make a home, to make us new, to born us again, to be in us. And I want you to understand something, that when the prophecy, when Jesus says, when you see these things happening, stand up and lift your heads, we're no, we're no, we're no less supposed to be doing that now as we do when it happened in the near term and in the ultimate. In other words, when you see these things happening, what things are we talking about? Anguish, bewilderment, roaring seas and waves, faint from fear, and expectation of things are coming on the world, celestial powers. We get that that's talking about something really grand, but does anybody think that right now in the world there's anguish, bewilderment, roaring seas, people faint with fear, the next expression is the one that I think is probably the one that's most key for us to really light into. Expectation of things that are coming in the world. Remember that. What are they afraid of? What's coming. What they expect is coming. See what they're afraid of? Not something that's already happened. Although they have good reason to expect something worse because of what has. But you see, they're afraid of even their expectation. And celestial powers will be shaken. So here's the question again. What are we supposed to be doing when we're experiencing anguish and bewilderment and roaring waves and things that we don't understand, the bewilderment and things that are happening? What are we supposed to be doing in these all-the-time happening events as they're fulfilling all the time? What are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be standing up and lifting our head. Why? Because Jesus comes into that. Jesus comes into those moments. 
Now, just to, just to make you understand, see, one of the things that's wearying about somebody who's in, say, a long-term health situation is, but I prayed and 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 Jesus has never come into that. Okay, pin that. Hold on to that because I want you to see what God's going to do with it here today. But in order to get us to where we want to get to today, I'm going to do something with you and I'm asking you to trust me. Okay? <laughs> You know, you can't hardly say that in today's world, can you? <laughs> if anybody asks you to trust, what's our first reaction? I'm, I'm asking you to trust me. Our first reaction is, oop, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> wow, what a world we live in. Just that, right? Please trust me. You asking me to trust me makes me not trust you. <laughs> but trust me. I'm going to have you close your eyes, and we're going to do a thing. You know, right, the Olympics are going to come, and you're going to see all those skiers visualizing their runs and so on. We're going to visualize something here, okay? And I want you to close your eyes, please. And I want you to think about you're now in heaven. You're living inside of his glory. No need of sun and moon. No need of anything. Because the glory of God, you are living inside the glory of God. Now just feel that for a moment. Just visualize that. You're in the glory of God. Now, take one of the problems that you may be having right now, relational, health, family, whatever it is. Take a problem that you're having right now and try and put it into heaven with you. It doesn't go, does it? Because the glorious light chases away all darkness. No death, no tears. Take any problem you've got and try and put it in heaven and tell me whether or not it can exist in his glory. Do you just feel God just wiping it out? So what are you feeling? Love, right? Surrounded. Peace, no anxiousness, security, total provision. Is there anything that you're wanting for? To the contrary, you're being blown away by what you're being given. There's no, gee, I wish I had, and if I had, it would be better. <laughs> All of that is erased in the glory of God. You feel it? Okay, now, keep your eyes closed. Second part of it. Now what I want you to do is, I want you to picture yourself right now in that glory, in this seat, in this moment, in this circumstance that you live in, with your relational problem, with the financial problem, with the health problem, with the job issue with whatever it is, whatever it is that's got you, that's, that squeaky wheel, that's getting some of your attention and focus. What is, now just, I want you to think about that, but I want you to understand that right now you're in heaven now. You're here, but his glory has come. His presence has come. Understand something. Let's say you're not healed, and let's say you're not delivered from the difficulty that you're in, but you're still being utterly surrounded by 
and encompassed in his glory. Does the problem that you're feeling, even though it's still there, do you have a different perspective on it right now than you did before we did this? Do you feel it? Do you feel how his glory puts it in an entirely different context? Somehow makes it something you could handle, even if it didn't. You see that? Go ahead and open your eyes. Here's what Jesus says. It's the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come, I come, so that you may have life and have it in abundance. See it? What's he trying to bring? And where is he trying to bring it? You got your situation, you got your circumstance that you're in. And the thief is trying to steal, trying to weary, trying to wear, trying to take down. And God is the one who's coming and in the midst of the circumstance. Not delivering you from, that can happen too, but that's not what we're looking at. In the midst of the circumstance, God's bringing you life abundantly. A life that's bigger than whatever problem you've got. You see it? We have this funny way of getting our focus on the bad things and losing the bigger picture. Oops, sorry. At the staff this week, Dave Cole mentors me. We were talking about a situation. Not, not a bad situation, but just plans and what we're going to do in the future and so on. And he said, you know what you guys would really love? This guy named Bill Meyer, Dr. Bill Meyer. He's a psychologist uh, and does a lot of industrial psychology stuff, business organizations and so on. He said, bring him in. Have him do disc test, but have him talk to you about team dynamics. It was phenomenal. In fact, I, I'm not seeing Amy today, but there was huge overlap of the stuff that Amy was teaching over these one weekends, which was really cool to see. But what the point is, is what he did was he was talking about disc tests, and here's what he said. He said, I want you to think about something about stress. He said, stress in the modern psychological conception of it actually comes from an unrelated scientific test. It's not that people in the old days didn't experience stress, but they didn't use the language that we now do about it. And he said, the language that we use about it comes from uh, some scientists that were working on cells, and what they said was, is here's a cell, and we would notice that as certain cells would come close to the cell, that some of them would just get all the way there, and they would connect. They might even merge with it. But that, but that good things would happen as these two cells connected, right? But then he said other cells, we noticed, would be coming up to that, and they would, something would happen, and they would suddenly be repelled, and they would go away. They would never connect. And he said, we couldn't figure out why those cells were doing that, so we started looking at what the variables were, and all of a sudden what we discovered was is that when the cells would repel, it was because the cells perceived a noxious environment in the space between the two cells that caused them to, for their own protection, run away, to repel. You see it? And he said, from that experiment came the modern psychological concept for stress which is the response to a noxious environment. 
And that has all kinds of technical meaning and it has all kinds of technical reasons for being. But here's what he said to us. He said, I want you to think about that definition. The response to a noxious environment. He said, what's the key word in that definition? Anybody? What was that? Yeah, you would think, wouldn't you? But actually, he had a good point because that's what I said. Response. Response is the key variable. And here's what he said. He said, a situation happens to you. You perceive it as noxious, and so you're repelled from it. But another person comes up to the very same situation, and they perceive it as a challenge and an opportunity, and they're attracted to it. <laughs> he said the variable is not the noxious environment. The variable is your response. How do you respond to this? Now, this is the second biggest thing that I think, I think, it's just, I, think I can say this right, I've been thinking about it, but I think this is the second biggest thing that God's been doing in my life. We're about to get to the biggest one. But the second biggest thing that God's been doing in my life about a year and a half is the sermon that I gave about a year and a half ago, which I referenced just recently, and sorry to go into it again, but I'm just doing it quickly, but it's a sermon I did about Julie's car. And many of you remember it because it was quite striking to watch this video of Julie's car and the literally mounds of stuff that was all over her car. Now, when I showed my car, there wasn't everything has a place and everything in its place. It was just perfectly clean. And for, we've been, how long have we been together, honey? Is it 42 or three years, something like that? A long time. Okay. Now, for 40 years, whenever I would get into Julie's car, I would have a reaction. Now, I want to make something clear. I'm not a jerk. I'm, that may be a surprise to some people. Okay? Every time I got in there, I didn't say, oh, my God, why don't you clean up your car? I know better. I like her. I like being with her, and I like her to like me, and I know that if every time I get in her car, I say that, you know, at some point in time, I'm going to open the door, and she's going to drive off. You know, might not ever come back. So I'm not dumb, and I'm not a jerk. So I don't say anything. I mean, I really don't say anything. But she knows. And for 40 years, she's been getting this thing that is a voice in her head that says, oh, shoot, he's got to get in my car, and it's filled with stuff, and he's going to feel a certain way and dark on it. That's what she's saying to herself. But a year and a half ago, when I first did this sermon, God started teaching me something new, which I'm telling you to this very moment in time, Julie still doesn't understand. And well, she shouldn't have to understand it so quickly because for 40 years I did one thing and now all of a sudden for a few months I'm doing something else. But I want you to see there's two reactions that I'm now having when I get in her car. Because what God showed me in that sermon was, is he said, I want you to see all the people that are being touched. And he brought it to my shame too because he said, compared to yours, Right? And literally, it started to turn my heart. Now, at this point in time, I've gotten to where there's two responses that I have, and only two. I never, well, let me just do it this way. There's two responses that I have. The first one is, is that I will walk, I will get into the car, and I will have this initial thought of, wow, kind of, you know, that thing again, right? That thing that's been there. But I want to tell you something instantly, quicker than my thoughts, instantly. And I'm telling you, I'm, 
I'm standing before you, and, you know, you're supposed to let your yay be yay and not swear or anything, right? But, you know, I'm just, I just want you to know that I'm telling you the truth right now because this is huge in me. I didn't know that this could happen because what happens is, is that the, the minute that I have that thought, the second that I have that thought, another thought just, just immediately comes on top of it, and that is she's helping somebody with that pile. Somebody got blessed with that pile. Right now in the back of her car is a piece of furniture, a table. It's not something most people have in the back of their car riding around. Well, she and Sandy Camel were on their walk. They walked every so often, and they went by a store. You know the story. And there was a store that was moving, and Julie did what she does, and Sandy the same way. And they went up, and they said, gee, you know, you got kind of cool furniture. Is there any of it you don't need? Because we'll find a use for it. And they said, yeah, the only thing we're not using is this table. It was pretty cool. And so Julie put it in her car without knowing where it was going. That seems totally wrong to me. Okay? But what it did was, see, I went, I don't know who to give it to, so I'd have walked on. And I would have just said, I don't want to pick it up and put it in my car. But Julie puts it in her car, and then she's driving around, and she's going, who am I supposed to give it to? And all of a sudden, she remembers that our niece, uh, Angie, and most of the time it's not family, but our niece, Angie, is working for a company called Luliang that just did the Alaska Airline thing, so it's kind of cool. And Angie was very, very involved in that. And, but she's in the fashion industry, which means she makes no money. And she just got a new place. And she doesn't have any money to get any furniture. So guess who's going to get this really cool table? To be blessed. And it didn't cost any money. It just cost care. It just cost being that kind of person that would always be doing what might help somebody else. Right? Good stuff, right? So what I'm telling you is the first response, if I have this response that tells me that has a little bit of a negative in it, it is instantly replaced by this is blessing somebody. And I feel that way. But I got to tell you, the cooler part of the story is this. The second reaction that I'm having, which is getting to be more and more and more, is I don't have the first reaction. It's just the second one. When I walk into her car, I see all this stuff. And I'm like, God, this is the weirdest thing, God. It just it breaks me up. But when I see her car, what I think now is, God, look at all the people that she's helping. Look at all these people that are being blessed by this. Look at the laundry that she's doing for the church. Look at the table that she's giving to Angie. Look at that clothing that she tried on for somebody else. And I don't even know all the stories. But what I do know is every single pile in there has a story. And that story is a blessing somebody. And I'm telling you, I'm getting to the place to where I don't have the first reaction. All I see when I go to her car is, is I'm going to get to see the, my incredible wife, the fruit of what she does and how she does things. Now that's good stuff, <laughs> right? We can reprogram ourselves. You don't have to look at that negative thing. You can look deeper and find the God thing in it. And when you find the God thing in it, it changes how you feel about it. Johanna Prowlis is doing this. She, I, I begged her, and she did, and it wasn't because of me. But she started a year and some ago now. She started doing this. I'm going to choose joy every day. I'm going to speak about something of joy. That act changed her life, as we saw in another sermon that I did, because this is something God's been doing in me. 
He's been showing me how you can completely change your life. Now, that right there, that's really good, right? Because it's getting you to where your reaction is to see God and not you. Not what you think and what you feel. It's to see how God thinks and how God feels. That's a really good thing, right? But I want to take it one more step deeper to you. And this is, again, something we've talked about before. But I just want to put some pieces together for you to feel something. In staff, it's not uncommon for us to come under attack. As a person, it's not uncommon. You're, look, do we all understand something? First of all, you're always under attack. Always. But sometimes you know what it feels like for the whole thing to just ramp up to a whole other level, right? So you're always being resisted by Satan, by the world. But there's times when it just sort of gets to a place to where you just sort of go, this is getting ridiculous. Usually the way it's staffed that we know we're under attack is, is that it's sort of like overplaying your hand. And at some point in time, you just go, this is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, you couldn't have like eight things happen all at once like this. This is stupid. We're under attack. Now, here's what we do. This is what I've been doing for years. And this is true in me. Whenever I feel like I'm in attack, I do the same thing every single time. My response is always the same. And that is, I say, what is the last thing that I know for absolute certain that God told me to do? Now, for a moment, I may come back to these other things. Some of the things I'm doing may be getting me drifted off from God. But what's the last thing I know for certain that God told me to do? And when I feel like I'm under attack, I just lay aside everything else, and I start doing that and that alone. I just press into that. Now, I want you to just think about this for a second in terms of like chess. If every time Satan attacks you and you become aware of the attack, if your response is to redouble your efforts to do the God thing that he told you to do, it's like it gets tougher for Satan to attack you. Now, I don't want to be stupid and silly. I don't want to say Satan couldn't attack me and blah, 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 right? So I'm not, I'm not overstating this, but I just want you to know something, and I want you to feel something. If our response to the things that we're being resisted, that we're being attacked on, if our response to those things is God, then there's a little bit of bring it on. <laughs> there's a little bit of that's not a noxious environment. Why, this is an opportunity. You see it? You start thinking of your life entirely differently. We're going to see a scripture that goes into that in just one second, but I just want you to, I just want you to think. So here's anguish and bewilderment and roaring seas and faint from fear and expectations. See, we, we don't just fear what's actually happened. We have this defense mechanism which causes us to inflate whatever might be coming so that we'll protect ourselves all the more. It's a defense mechanism that actually takes us down the hole further. But what happens if every time you go into anguish or bewilderment or roaring seas or faint from fear, what happens if every time, instead of becoming fearful, you start trusting? What if your response, even if the first response is fear, what if you immediately say, nope, this is an opportunity for me to trust God? This is an opportunity for me to bring that glory here to me now because I need it now. <laughs> and whether or not he delivers you or whether or not anything actually happens, the one thing you can do is bring his glory into your situation. Why? Because it's always there. You can just become cognizant. Oh, my soul, praise him. Oh, my soul, trust him. Why are you so anxious, says David, to his own soul? 
Stop it. You see, if every time I get into bewilderment or anxiety or fear, if my reaction is trust. You don't ever want to say bring on the fear because that's just stupid. But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring life. To do something incredible. You know what he's doing here? He's teaching us how to take captive every thought. You see it? A thought comes into your mind, take it captive. And what are you taking it captive from? Destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. You see what fear is? God does not give us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of sound mind. He's the one that causes everything to work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. What's our response? How do we react? Do you see it? And in fact, what happens if you start doing that? If you start really trusting God in all the moments where you were about to freak, <laughs> if you start trusting, what does it produce in you? It's a byproduct as inevitable as I don't know what. But it's just absolutely as inevitable as rain in January, right? It is going to happen. If you're trusting him and trusting him and trusting him no matter what happens, if you are always pressing in and trusting him, what's going to happen? You're going to start being in joy. I'm just talking about it, and it's bringing me joy. <laughs> so what good does it do to follow Jesus? It's not just that dangling your feet over the fires of hell thing. It brings you joy now. Do you want that? Who doesn't want more joy in their life? <laughs> We're built to want that. You want more joy, and this is how to get into more and more and more joy. And by the way, remember we said at the very beginning, we said that the world asks that question, what good does it do to, to follow Jesus? And they actually say it does harm and so on. Let me tell you the most effective counterpunch to that attitude. Christians that no matter what is happening are in joy, that are trusting, that are being benevolent, that are being gracious, that are helping people from their joy. Do you see it? That's the most effective witness you could imagine. And in fact, isn't this what it's saying when it says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. And when your endurance is fully developed, now listen, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Did Jesus walk on the earth thinking, if I just had this, I'd be happy? <laughs> no. He had everything. And he was filled with joy always. And he showed us that we can live that way. So I'm going to ask you to do this one last time.
Close your eyes. I want you to take all those problems that you have, whatever they are, the besetting ones, the ones that are just killing you and sucking you dry. And right now, with the Holy Spirit helping you, I want you to flip them. Instead of thinking about them and instead of expecting even worse, instead of being dried out, instead of being drained from it, I want you to think about how you can flip it, how you can think about it totally differently. It's not going to be easy if you have some terrible health thing. What are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to give him thanks in all things? Well, yeah. Well, how can I give you thanks in that thing? I don't know, but if you'll let the Holy Spirit speak to you right now, he'll tell you. He'll start to show you how God's glory is there, how his love is there how his presence is always there and always has been and always will be. How he's got something much different than what you think, much bigger. And he's loving you every single moment, holding you every single moment. And all of a sudden you're looking at this thing that is so devastating to you and it's so draining in you. And all of a sudden you're starting to feel his love. And I want you to teach, I want you to experience the flip. That where you take a thing that Satan meant for evil and you find where God meant it for good. I'm not being superficial Christianese here. Oh, God's got a bigger purpose for you. It may sound like that, but it's much more deep than that. And it goes right down to do you trust God? Do you know that he's there? Do you know that he has you despite everything else? Get below all of that to where God is holding you. And the next time that you have this fear, the next time you have this anxiety, the next time you worry, let another thought come right on top of it. God's presence. He's got you. No superficial answers. He's got you. He's holding you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, in Jesus' most magnificent name. Surround us. Hold us. Envelop us. Let us see your glory. Let us see your care and your love. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You got me. Thank you. Now reach down in front of you and grab these two cups. And in the bottom cup is his body. And you recognize that it was you that broke your body by not trusting, by knowing everything I just said today. Every single person in here already knew this. But it doesn't mean we're living in it. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, I want you to take that bottom cup and I want you to put your finger in there.
And I want you to say, I've broken my body by not trusting you. And I'm sorry. But I got a God who heals me. I got a God who makes me whole. I got a God who puts it all back together. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, take this cup of healing. By his stripes, you are healed. Take this and say that. And now, Jesus, in your glorious presence, we just thank you for the life that you have given to us, the one that you modeled, the one that's just waiting for us. Nothing else has to be done. We don't have to do anything. It's already waiting for us. All we have to do is enter in. So thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. That in Jesus' holy and precious name, there's a new life that I can walk in evermore. And it's filled with joy. Lift this cup. Thank you, Jesus. Take this cup. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm just rivers of living water just pouring out. Can I say something, actually? Sometimes when you preach, you're preaching, and you can tell you're being resisted, and it's sort of like you're having to push. That's hardly ever what I ever feel here. What I always feel is people that are thirsty and hungry and that are saying, give it to me. Give it to me as much as you can. You make these sermons better. Lord, in Jesus' name, we just come and bring you an offering now.